Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, global health systems have been challenged like never before. As time and resources were directed towards responding to the virus, it was the dedication of healthcare workers that kept services running. Amongst the uncertainty, our hardworking Queensland clinicians have continued their pursuit of excellence, innovating and adapting the way they work to ensure consumers always receive the best care possible. To them, the pandemic was an opportunity to learn and grow and to ensure healthcare delivery continues to evolve to the ever-changing landscape. Because if we've learned anything from the last two years, it is that things will always change and our clinicians will always rise to the occasion. Working alongside the Chief Health Officer in Prevention Division for the last 12 months, Professor Keith McNeil knows all too well the disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic. Both frank and hopeful, he joined us to officially open this year's showcase and looked back at what has happened so far and what the road ahead may look like. How did we get here? Well, you know, we all know what we go back probably two years now in October 2019. I had some friends who were actually in, supposed to be going to scientific conferences in Wuhan at the time and they were advised by their colleagues over there not to travel because there was a funny virus around. This is October 2019, so about three, four months before the actual whole thing broke early on. And there's various reasons as to why. Of course, we think this probably has come from a bat, maybe an intermediary like that poor old pangolin there, which is a subject of wet market uh, use over there. But however it was, it all came out of Wuhan. And of course, the big thing was Chinese New Year early in 2020, when the whole diaspora of people left and took COVID around the world. And there you can see how it just spread from that one epicenter. It started with one person who got infected and we've now got a global pandemic, the likes we have never seen before. This is where we're up to right now. So as of yesterday, there were 235 million cases reported worldwide. And of course, there are many more cases than that that have never been reported or weren't recognised early on. So suffice it to say, there's a significant number of people have been infected with this virus and nearly 5 million deaths, probably over 5 million deaths at least because of the number that, that we just don't know about in some of the developing countries. What's really sobering though is that when you look at the life lost, or years of life lost, it's probably 20 million years. So, you know, if a 20-year-old dies of this, they've probably lost 60 years of life. So when you start to add that up in those sorts of terms, there's a staggering loss of life uh, attributed to this virus. In Australia, actually it is, I was at the 4th of August, because I did uh, update these uh, yesterday, 107,172 cases. And we've got off relatively lightly, haven't we? We've, uh, we've only had 1,300 deaths in Australia. Queensland's done brilliantly, thanks to Jeanette and, and the team. 2,000 cases, basically 26 active cases and only seven deaths, most of which were related in the early days to the Ruby Princess. So we've done very, very well. When you look at uh, what's happening, though, despite the, the huge number of vaccines that are being rolled out, you can see those case numbers are continuing to go up in places like the United States, for instance, which is just a complete train wreck when it comes to COVID and their handling of the whole situation, thanks to one Donald Trump. But all those countries, and you see the UK who have done brilliantly with their vaccination protocol, but as they've opened up on the basis of reaching 80%, 
they're getting more and more COVID cases, more than they've ever seen before. So there's some lessons for us to take home there that 80% vaccination is just the start of the beginning. It's certainly not an end to anything. If you look at the UK in specific, you can see it there. They've had 136,953 deaths as of yesterday, as of the 30th September rather, which is a lot for COVID, but what I want to, and, and you can see they've done nearly 50 million vaccinations, first doses, and there's a population of 60 million, so they've done spectacularly well, but they're still seeing their cases climb, as you can see there. What's really sobering though, is that there's been 100,000 excess deaths over on top of that, and that's because people who require care haven't been able to access it because the hospitals have been full to overflowing with COVID cases. Again, sobering for us as we contemplate opening up more and more as the vaccine rolls out, that we are going to get an impact of this on hospital capacity. There is just no escaping that, and it's starting to be played out in the press as of this morning. Now, if you look in Australia right here and right now, if you look just south of the border, 58,000 cases since June 21. So that's the, uh, the New South Wales cluster that started with a limousine driver in Bondi and was perpetuated through the fact that Mimco stores could stay open during a lockdown, and uh, that's because they sold masks. And you could also do tennis lessons in Bondi during the middle of a lockdown, so they really took it seriously. 981 people have been hospitalised, nearly 1,000. Now look at what happens from there though. 195 end up in ICU and 93 of those have been ventilated. So there is a cascade here that you cannot escape that if you are unvaccinated, 372 deaths predominantly unvaccinated, if you are unvaccinated, you will catch COVID and you will get sick almost certainly, and you could end up in ICU on a ventilator and or die. And you can see the figures there, which basically in a percentage wise replicate in Victoria, exactly what's happened in New South Wales. So where are we right now? So 2% of people who catch COVID become hospitalised. And of those, about 20% of them end up in ICU. And if you go to ICU, about 50% chance you'll get on a ventilator. And there's just under a 1% death rate. Now, it's better now than it was in the early days of Alpha because we know so much more about COVID and how to treat it. And Australia has a very good intensive care system. So we've done very well in that respect. But still, you know, I don't like those odds. Let's put that in perspective. What's the risk of dying from getting a vaccine? Oh, one in a million. So, you know, it really puts it into focus, these idiots out there who refuse to get vaccinated because they think it's dangerous. One in 10 people who don't die or don't even go to hospital will have ongoing symptoms for over three months after the virus. And about 30% have long-term COVID-induced disability. And if you want to put that in real terms about how does it affect people if they get long COVID, well, as I was telling a group of orthopaedic surgeons the other day, about 30% of you will lose your sense of taste and smell for up to 12 months, which means that you can't enjoy red wine. And 10% of you, all of them being male, will get erectile dysfunction. <laughs> so there you go. There's a good incentive to go and get vaccinated. <laughs> now, in Australia, what we see in the cases, it's really interesting when you look at this because the most cases are seen in younger people because they're socially active. They're out and about spreading virus, catching virus, yada, yada, yada. And elderly people or the people at risk with chronic diseases tend to stay home more. They're a bit more conservative, a bit more sensible. That translates, however, when you look at deaths exactly the other way around, in that the people at risk are at the other end of the curve. So that's why the priority vaccination for, for the elderly, for people in nursing homes, for people with complex chronic diseases, etc., that at-risk population. So even though they're not the most uh, affected in terms of those getting sick, they certainly get the most uh, impact in terms of, of uh, morbidity and mortality. 
your risk of dying from COVID is about 100 times if you're over 80 than compared to an under 20 year old, which is why we really need to focus on protecting our vulnerable populations, which includes First Nations, by the way, as we'll see. Now, how have we responded to COVID? Well, this is a stylised thing from the early days about flattening the curve. So if you let this thing get out and you don't flatten it, it'll pounce on you and scratch your eyes out and you're in all sorts of trouble. Whereas if you, you know, keep it nice and quiet and keep it under the curve or you flatten that curve, then we've got a chance of coping with it. And that flattening of the curve is all about system capacity to cope. So as soon as that curve goes over our capacity of the system to cope, people start dying unnecessarily from other diseases. So that's the whole rationale around keeping that curve flattened. And we do that through various means, as you know one of which are the societal controls, all of which have been shown to be important, all of which need to be used contemporaneously. Social distancing, hand washing, sneezing techniques, disinfection of surfaces and masks, of course. So all of those things are important and will stay being important even as we move into the world of vaccination. And this just shows you exactly how effective those sorts of things are when you look at compliance with social distancing and et cetera, et cetera, that as you get compliance up over 80%, you significantly flatten that curve, which is why, you know, when you see those people in Victoria out in the streets marching unvaccinated, unmasked, etc., not surprisingly, they ran into all sorts of trouble and their numbers are going up and up and up, and I think they're about 1,500 today or something like that. I love this quote, you can't even for a million dollars get a drug for coronavirus, but your grandmother's bar of soap kills it. Yeah, so, um, you know, hand washing, simple hygiene techniques, which interestingly have also seen a marked reduction in people catching the flu, catching meningitis and all those other childhood illnesses. And it's been a spectacularly effective way of preventing communicable diseases of, of all types, not just COVID. These sorts of things, uh, you know, these hygiene techniques about sneezing and coughing, just don't touch your face. There's an interesting parallel here with mask wearing as well, which have been shown, masks of course have been shown to be very effective, but they're not effective if you keep touching them. So what they're finding in the Sydney cluster now is that even people in appropriate PPE with N95s, P2 masks, that because they're a bit uncomfortable, people are adjusting them with their hands and they're, and they're breaking their PPE integrity and they're catching COVID. So what they're finding is that any mask well worn with eye protection is more effective than the best mask that's not properly worn. And that's a lesson for us, uh, particularly if we get to the point where we might start to run out of things. Masks tend to protect others from you, not so much you from others, um, which is why this is a societal uh, benefit that we all get on and do this. Of course, some masks are spectacularly effective, uh, much more effective than others, and they, they, that works very well. Um, what about lockdowns? Well, lockdowns are effective, but they're not a way of controlling COVID in the long term. They should be used as a short-term reset. And I think Queensland has done brilliantly with this. When you look at our outbreaks, we've locked down hard, we've locked down fast, and we've locked down for short periods of time to get it under control, and then we've backed off. And that's worked very well. We've spent less time in lockdown than just about anywhere. Curiously, our cousins to the far south in Melbourne have been locked down more than any city in the world through the whole thing. Uh, and I'll talk to you about that in a moment. So public health, uh, of course, has been critical to this. Find people, contact tracing, isolate them, get them off the streets so they're not passing the, the bug around, and test, 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 including wastewater, which in the early days everybody thought, why would you want to do that? You're mad. And now it's uh, mission critical. We watch with some degree of trepidation the fact that New South Wales is coming up with new wastewater detections all over their state, even as late as yesterday. 
It only takes one COVID-idiot to trigger an outbreak, as we've seen. You delay for one week in your response and you're probably going to be mopping up for over six weeks. Uh, and the, the stark uh, comparison there is what happened in the Melbourne outbreak for 2020 where they dilly-dallied around about shutting down and they tried to micro-control it rather than just biting the bullet and saying, look, Melbourne needs to lock down and then we'll get it under control. It took them three months before they bit the bullet and, and they spent nearly six months in lockdown. Whereas uh, Wacol, which were, you couldn't have imagined a worse scenario for an outbreak than in a prison with young people who were being let out and going all over the state, we controlled that in, uh, in under four weeks. So, you know, the, the message is absolutely clear. Lockdown early, lockdown hard and you get a much uh, shorter clean-up time. Oh, of course, that was with the Alpha variant, Delta, who knows. Now, who's at risk? Well, over 65-year-olds, obviously, chronic disease patients, First Nations people. And uh, when you look at that in Queensland, that's about 40% 40, 40 of Queenslanders. So 2 million people in Queensland are at risk if they catch COVID, and they're unvaccinated particularly, of, of significant morbidity and mortality. So we've got a lot of work to do to protect that group of people. And, of course, First Nations are particularly affected by this. Now, we've done really, really well. We haven't had a, a case in an isolated First Nations community nor a death in Queensland, although they have had deaths in New South Wales. So we are absolutely spot on getting that uh, population vaccinated in partnership with the Commonwealth, who have largely taken that on as their role. We're not doing very well at the moment. We're under 50% and we need to do much, much better. And every day, as Haleen tells us, First Nations first when it comes to vaccines. Get them vaccinated as quickly as we can. So what's all the fuss about? Well, it's really about people dying and demand on hospital services. And so if you have a look at that conversion there, for every thousand cases of COVID that uh, are circulating in the community, 20 will end up in hospital, four in ICU, two on a ventilator. And if you do the maths, 100,000 unvaccinated infected means we have no ICU beds left in the state. And if we hit an 80% vaccination target, that leaves us with 800,000 people unvaccinated. So a bit of a worry, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah, get out there and spread the gospel, please. Now, COVID-19 is not influenza, despite what all the conspiracy theorist idiots will tell you. There is no proven or effective treatment for this virus, although some of the monoclonal antibodies, as I'll touch on in a minute, uh, are proving of some benefit. Chronic long-term sequelae are, are nasty. And if you look at the death rates there, when the Spanish flu hit, there were 50 million worldwide deaths. Well, the US alone has eclipsed the number of deaths by COVID from what they experienced during the Spanish flu. So this is much, much worse in terms of mortality, uh, just pure mortality, let alone morbidity, than the Spanish flu was. Now, when you looked uh, early on, if you had a look at what this virus did in comparison with others, and if you look up, the, the, up, up on the y-axis there, that tells you how many people die from the virus, how um, virulent it is, and along the bottom tells you how transmissible it is. And that red bar there shows you the COVID-19 alpha variant. Uh, of course, things have moved on. The, the Delta variant now is sitting up around here, so much more infectious and more, more um, in terms of virulence. So it's settled now as the worldwide dominant variant uh, and it's a concern because of its infectiousness and its virulence. Well, what's the road to recovery for us? Well, vaccines, herd immunity, 
virus attenuation perhaps uh, and effective treatments. So first of all, herd immunity, well that's where a significant portion of the population is infected and then the virus dies, sort of dies out naturally. Well, you know, this has been tried and tested in Sweden and various other places. The UK tried earlier and doesn't work. You only have to look at what would happen unchecked in Queensland and you'd have 50,000 50, deaths just from COVID, which is unacceptable given the way that we can control it. So let's get that out of our mind. Although one of the ways of achieving herd immunity, if you like, for want of a better term, is get people vaccinated. Vaccines, well, we know that there's an array of vaccines now available in Australia and more coming. And so this will be the way forward and we'll get into, no doubt, we'll get into booster vaccines with the influenza as we go forward. We've done brilliantly as a race getting vaccines to, to market, not, not in a rushed way, it's just that we've taken out the time it's taken to go through regulation. So the science is just as robust as with any other drug or any other vaccine we've ever produced. And, and the, the, the AstraZeneca platform, for instance, has been 10 years in the development uh, and regulation. It's just that this came along at a time and the regulators decided that they needed to fast track their decision making, not the scientists. And no shortcuts with the science there. Here's a case in point from Taiwan about vaccines. So they were very hesitant and they went from 1,300 cases a year because they did very well on the back of the preparation they'd had from the original SARS virus. So 3,100 cases in the week all stemmed out of that uh, local cluster at a Lions Club in the red light district. And that uh, really sold them on and the need to get out and get vaccinated. But that's how quickly these things can get out of control as we've seen now in Australia. AstraZeneca, the world's first vaccine, as you can see there, highly and very, very unfairly maligned by the press. Of course, as soon as you saw the, the press saying someone's died of AstraZeneca vaccine, it became uh, a non-starter. It is just as safe and just as effective, if not more effective, than Pfizer. It has saved, as you can see up there, at least 13,000 lives and prevented 40,000 hospitals in the UK alone. It's 89% effective over time. It's been unfairly maligned and uh, it's a real shame because we had the capacity to make uh, endless amounts of it in Australia, but effectively it's not being used anymore because of what the press got hold of and, uh, and sold to us in their sensationless, catastrophizing way. What we've done very well is, is you look here at our vaccine uptake by age, you can see that these groups here, the older groups, so that group that's at risk, are getting vaccinated, which is good news for us because that's the group that is also most at risk of catching the disease and ending up in hospital. And that's where our focus has got to be, not at 80%, not at 90%, but at 95, 96, 97, 98, 99% or 100%. So we need to keep doing that. Now, what about the virus? Will it change? Will it attenuate? Well, of course it will change, but whether it will get less virulent is yet to be seen because Delta seems to have hit the sweet spot between being able to infect as many people as it likes, unvaccinated, and not kill so many that it wipes out its host population. Early on in the days, we were dominated by the UK Alpha variant, and there were a couple of others that kind of uh, showed their heads up. But of course now the worldwide dominance is with Delta and what we will see moving on over the coming six to 12 months are variants of Delta that come through depending on its evolutionary benefit. So Delta's here to stay at least in the short to medium term I would suspect. But uh, you know, if, uh, if nothing, this virus is unpredictable. What about effective treatments? Um, well, dexamethasone certainly for people who have got terrible lung disease, uh, simply by reducing the immune response. And similarly with monoclonal
environmental antibodies. Uh, two, there are two really that are out there. One, uh, sotrovimab, which is targeted against the virus itself to stop it being able to enter cells. And the other one there, tocilizumab, which stops the immune response to the virus, which stops the damage to the lungs, etc. But you've got to use that early on. Now, pregnancy is a big problem here because we're seeing from down south that pregnancy, like the original SARS virus, or the H1N1 virus actually, is particularly at risk. So pregnant women are particularly at risk for devastating consequences of this virus. And there's no question whatsoever that unless there is an extant contraindication that pregnant women should become vaccinated because the, the, the devastating effects of the virus are being played out in Melbourne in, and in Sydney right now. What about ineffective treatments? Well, ivermectin, unless you're a cow with a parasitic disease, ivermectin doesn't work. Rectal UV light therapy, unless you want a suntan rectum, doesn't work. Intravenous soap, uh, or unless you're an idiot, uh, which is, of course, a form of natural selection. And flowing white linen outfits and almond soy lattes don't work, unless you live in Byron Bay, because they're special. What about some fun facts about COVID? Well, what you probably don't know is that Neanderthals, which are a different species, and modern humans share some DNA, clustered on chromosome three, about 50% of people from Southeast Asia have it, 16% from Europe, and that puts you at increased risk of respiratory failure if you catch COVID. Fun fact. Now, what about lockdowns? Not all lockdowns are bad. You can actually have time to think during lockdowns, and in fact, when Isaac Newton was locked down during the bubonic plague, he discovered gravity, optics, and invented calculus. So you can be productive. And remember that next time we're locked down, yeah? One of the very interesting things early on when we looked at the behaviour of the virus coming out of, remember that diaspora I showed you from Wuhan spreading the virus around the world? Well, when you look at the cases that came from that, only about 15% of them were shown to be spreading it beyond their, themselves. Uh, and so that was one of the reasons why every time we got an outbreak, we, we didn't see it go wild. Because only, for whatever reason, only a percentage of people who catch the virus actually end up spreading it. Fake news, lots of fake news. Um, this is a good one. You know, every hundred years there's some Armageddon-like thing comes along. But actually, that's, uh, that's just coincidental, as you would know. And there have been a few other pandemics thrown in along the way that uh, the conspiracy theorists choose not to, uh, not to acknowledge. And I, I really like this, you know, what, just wait until the conspiracy theorists discover they're part of a conspiracy to use conspiracy theorists to spread disinformation via conspiracy theory. Yeah, and one of my favourite diagrams, I use this for data, uh, when I'm talking about data, so data, information, knowledge, joining up the right dots, insight, wisdom when you get the right ones, and then, of course, conspiracy theory. The future, well, it's very hard to predict the future here because this is such a complex, chaotic environment. And I'll show you this. This is a really interesting parallel. So you might have heard of chaos theory, yeah, which is uh, which opined based on weather predictions, actually, that if a butterfly, a very small input, uh, flapped its wings in a, in a rainforest that it could prevent or cause a tornado in Kansas, and that was chaos theory. 1961, Edward Lorenz, who was a meteorologist at, at MIT, I came up with all that. And so people kind of think it's a bit fanciful, and there's been movies made about the butterfly effect starring Ashton Kutcher, if you want to know. But, uh, you know, it's theory, and people think, oh, really, you know? Well, guess what? You know, what about a bat flapping its wings in Wuhan? You know, one tiny little input, and woof. And chaos is all about unpredictability, unprecedented. There is no playbook. That's chaos fact. 
So chaos theory is not a theory, it's a fact and we are living and breathing it right now and the unpredictability, uh, unanticipated consequences uh, we're seeing played out all the time. And here's a couple. Who would have thought that COVID-19 would have led the digital transformation of Queensland Health? Pretty good, hey? Unanticipated but good news. Who would have thought there'd be wild sheep running down the main streets of villages in Wales? Or that people in Nepal would be able to see the Himalayas for the first time in living memory because cars were off the road and the pollution cleared. Or that the canals of Venice without tourists there would start to run clean. Or that Virgin Airlines would collapse six months after COVID hit Australia. You know, they're unanticipated. You couldn't possibly have the data to be able to anticipate those sorts of things happening. What about control of the virus? Well, we're, we're right now in the situation where we're always weighing up, oh, should we control the virus and push the economy or should we not worry about the economy and make sure the virus is well controlled? And right now, we're going for lives. We're, we're trying to stop the virus circulating so we can stop people dying. And actually, we've done pretty well economically. And in fact, Sweden and, and Denmark showed the same. Denmark did what we did. Sweden did what they did, which is more like the Melbourne-Sydney kind of analogy. Denmark's economy recovered after fast, hard lockdowns much faster than Sweden, and they've had many, many fewer deaths. So I think we've got the balance absolutely right there. One of the opportunities we have, and we've said this during the reform agenda, is, is what do we take out of COVID and go forward? So, you know, we can, we can just bunker it out and then go back to the bad old ways. But I'd suggest to you there is a way both for society, for humanity, as well as for us in the health service, to really get out there and think differently about how we go about living our lives. It's really important if we take this opportunity or not. And if we think about it in those, in those ways, a lot of bad stuff out of COVID, but let's at least try and extract all the good we can out of what we're going through as a race, uh, as a society, as a health system, uh, and really make the best of what we, what we can get out of it. Because at the end of the day, it will be our choice. How we respond to it will be our choice. The global pandemic has been run by politicians, and we has largely been, most of the decisions that have been made about what happens are driven by political, at the end of the day, by, by political will. But that is our choice as to how we let that play out. So I would suggest when you go away from here and you think about COVID, think about what kind of world do we want to, to live in next year, the year after, the year after that? What kind of world do we want our kids to inherit? Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.